come to uh, a turning point in our study, indeed the last turning point in the Gospel of Luke. You know, we began last fall by looking at Jesus' conversation that was more about who he was in his person. Uh, we spent the winter time and up until now talking about, you know, what Jesus says about what we need to be if we are to follow him. Well, this morning we begin looking at Jesus with his arrival in Jerusalem uh, at what we see him appealing to us on the basis of our affections. I had one commentator who said he has instructed our minds, he has admonished our wills, and now he wants to win our emotions, our hearts. And since we've been sort of posing this consistent question to this book, what is it that would make Jesus so compelling to these people? It makes sense to establish that from here on out, we get to the heart of what Jesus wanted to do. Everything has been building to this. And you're going to notice it because the narrative starts to crawl. If you think about it, we really sort of rushed through the first few years of Jesus' public ministry in these first 20 chapters. But in these last four chapters, you get lots of detail, meticulous detail, recording all the minutiae of Jesus' experiences while he was in Jerusalem. Uh, commentator, New Testament commentator Bill Lane once said that the Gospels really are just passion narratives with really long introductions. Because why? Because everything that Jesus has said is to be comprehended by what's about to come in the next few days. That's the point. And if you're looking for what that's about, I think our passage sort of puts it succinctly. And that is that Jesus is here to be crowned king. Uh, one of the most compelling things about Jesus is that his followers repeatedly called him a king. But of course, if that's really compelling for Jesus to be a king, then why is it that the idea of kings and queens and lords and ladies, they all just seem so, so medieval to us? Well, C.S. Lewis argues that actually inside every human being, there's this very powerful internal dynamic that causes us to long for kings. So much so that if you don't have them in sort of your, your, your society structure, you'll create them out of celebrities. <laughs> um, you know, we've gotten mostly rid of royalty in the West, but, you know, we still get obsessed, don't we? With the pace setters, the celebrities, the, the power brokers that work among us. I, I heard Tim Keller one time say that he laments how often Hollywood uh, is sort of pushing on us these very serious, realistic fiction on their viewership. When the most popular movies they know are these stories of fantasy and a heroic narrative. Um, and that's what people gravitate towards as it applies to entertainment. Uh, you know, we want dragons. <laughs> uh, we want heroes and, and epic adventures. And we want kings. But Hollywood just condescends to these movies all the time. And, you know, they sort of begrudgingly crank out those kinds of popular movies. So why? So they can pay for the movies of their depressing realism, right? I think this is one of the reasons why Black Panther was such a mix-up for the, for, the, for, the, for the Oscars this year. Um, you know, so rarely do those kinds of hero movies get nods from the Academy. But, you know, it took a, a mythology of black experience to sort of shame them into it. But why is it that in our so-called egalitarian democracies, that if we don't have royalty in our societies, we just create it? We must have them. We have to have a king in our life. One way or the other, the need to have an authority to whom you look up to and honor and imitate and obsessively follow on Instagram has to be served. 
And so my premise this morning is that this is embedded in our humanity to want a king. So the question is not, do you have a king? But what kind of king are you following this morning? That's the question. And what kind of king is Jesus coming as, as he enters Jerusalem to approach the climax of his ministry among us? Well, I would suspect that there are at least three things that we can find here. That Jesus comes to us first as the sovereign king. Secondly, he comes to us as the expected king. And then thirdly, he comes to us as the weeping king. First of all, Jesus comes to us as the sovereign king. Look at his instructions to the disciples in verse 30. He knows that there's a cult in the village. He knows that that cult has never been ridden. He also knows that someone is going to ask a question about them taking it. The animal is commandeered because why? Because the Lord needs it. Look, but the detail that Jesus gives surrounding this event is basically saying, in what's getting ready to happen to me, nothing's going to surprise me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to predict it all. Jesus is calling a shot. (laughs) He looks out and says that things are going to fall out exactly the way that they're supposed to. And when the disciples see it, there's something really amazing that unfolds. And it's that. It's that Jesus was not a victim of what happened to him in Jerusalem in the days to follow. He saw what was coming. And it wasn't that he let it happen to him. It's that he was audaciously causing it to happen. Remember, the religious authorities had already sent out a decree that if anyone saw Jesus, they should have him arrested and brought uh, to them. Of course, the reason why they don't arrest him right now is because Jesus' poll numbers are too high uh, to be able to do so for fear of the crowds. But in the midst of that kind of oppression, Jesus doesn't head for the hills and hide. He marches publicly and triumphantly to, to actually to bring this fight to them. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus is sovereignly conducting every single step from here on out. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, you'll remember that Jesus had resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. It means that what he's doing is, is he is enacting something. He's ordaining something. He's, He's accomplishing something. And so in other words, Jesus is coming as a king who is actually in charge of what's going on. He's showing himself a king who knows, who knows what's coming and is going to be in charge of what's coming. Before we move to the second point, there's a couple of thoughts I think we can draw out of this. The first one is this. Jesus is showing that he is in possession of a divine power to set the future in action. Not just know it, but to enact it. And I realize that we get to the uncomfortable topic of the power and the sovereignty of God over every area of life. But I've always found it kind of interesting the way people react to this. You know, on the one hand, there's a lot of people who just recoil at the idea that my life is being mapped out by some great intentionality out there. You know, you've heard me say that this generation coming up, of all the the human values that are respected among this upcoming generation... Freedom is number one on the list right now. No one can tell me how I'm supposed to live. You know, no one can sort of impose their viewpoint on me. I am who I am. Cross that line and you'll be met with downright anger. Or, as we've been talking about, the, the weaponized social media. But here's my question. In the midst of that freedom, how do you explain the tendency for so many who really want so badly 
for the universe to be formatting things to work out exactly the way you want them. (laughs) In other words, we love stories that sort of push us towards these gloriously pre-planned destinies. So I don't know if it's the same in your house, but in my house, we love the romantic comedy Serendipity. Again, gentlemen, you can be forgiven if you've not watched this because it's syrupy sweet. I'm not going to lie to you. You get sugar all over you after you watch it. But I got curious the last time we watched it a few weeks ago where we got the word serendipity. And as it turns out, it comes from a word from a Persian fairy tale, of all things, called the Three Princes of Serendip, right? Imagine someone saying that. Well, in the story, there are these three sons of a great king who are sent away to sort of prove and learn that they can be true leaders. While they're away, they have to use their their powers of deduction to find a camel, of all things. But it turns out that it's in exactly the place where their father said it should be, at exactly the time and under the exact circumstances it was supposed to be. So the word serendipity means that events that might seem kind of random are actually really orchestrated. They're ordained. They're heading somewhere. So in the movie, you know, John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale... You know, these star-crossed lovers who eventually, you know, spoiler alert, you know, they end up together after all these random sort of silly events going on. But here's what's crazy. (laughs) In as much as this generation values freedom and, and no one can define my life for me, it seems like every time I turn the television on, this movie is playing. Why? Because a desire to know that what I see going on around me is not random, is deep in the heart of every person. We want for serendipity to be true. That somewhere out there, these, these sort of simple little events that are out there are leading to something. If you take the sort of freedom movement to its logical end, you really do end up with meaninglessness, you know, randomness, uh, haphazardness. But it's as if we know that can't be the case on the inside. Look, Jesus is saying, I am coming to bring all of these things that look to you like random events of my life. I'm going to bring them together to a conclusion, orchestrated at every turn. Why? So that I can bring the same orchestration to the random events of your life. That it didn't happen for nothing. I'm going to let you know that I am sovereign so that you can trace my sovereignty throughout every area of life. Now look, I realize, small little, small little asterisk at the bottom here. There's a certain version of people who get very interested in God's absolute sovereignty that uh, is what I would call a very wooden understanding of his uh, control over life. Uh, and honestly, can, can drive people into some very serious neuroses. Um, I mean, if, if the idea of God's control is like leading you to find that perfect parking space in Walmart... Uh, You may have missed the point of what Jesus is doing here. There is such a thing as the mundane. But look, riddle me this. (laughs) Don't you want to know that all of the pain, that the anxiety, uh, the, the, the hard work, the frustration, that it's all heading somewhere? (laughs) When was the last time that you sensed in your life orchestration? When something was, was too perfect not to be intentional. What does that say to you? Does it thrill you? Does it somehow comfort, comfort you? Because perhaps it's supposed to. Uh, perhaps you were built for it, in fact. 
But secondly, though, I think it's important to establish that Jesus, Jesus knows what he's doing. You know, he's in Jerusalem so he can force the issue of his identity because he's making a claim that is so big about himself that there really, when it comes down to it, are only two responses to what Jesus says. In other words, if he's the king that he claims to be, there's not a whole lot of middle ground in your response to him. You know, Um, know, there's this polarizing thing that happens when you come to Jesus and you realize that you only have two choices. You can crown him as king over you, or you can kill him. You crown him or you crucify him. Those are really the only options that he gives to you because of just how over the top his claims are. Jesus doesn't come into a heart, into a life, or as we pray in this church, into this city, you know, as, unless he comes as a king. He can come as a healer. He can be a helper. He can be a counselor. He can be a friend and a shepherd. But none of those things will be realized in life without him first becoming a king, first and foremost. So you're going to know that you've met the real Jesus because you're going to feel him pushing you to extremes. He's always forcing you to examine, to, to evaluate, to investigate. And there's this intuitive sense that once you've met him, you don't, you don't get all the say over your own life that you thought you might have had. He now dictates what I have to say. And of course, the corollary truth is, is if you have fashioned a Jesus, you know, who uh, you'll know is false, if he's just an appendage, right? He's an add-on to my life. He's a buddy, a helpful buddy. That's a false Jesus that we see. So we either, we either kill him or we crown him. Those are the two options that are only available to us. So Jesus, first of all, is the sovereign king. Secondly, though, we see that Jesus is the expected king. You may not be able to see it on your first read-through, but like Jesus is almost mocking normal triumphal entries uh, in this narrative because everything about it is wrong. Um, you know, no king would enter into a city on a donkey. Um, you know, a couple hundred years before it turns out, there was a conquering uh, king named Simon Maccabeus who marched into Jerusalem having conquered all of his enemies. Uh, but you know, victors in battle don't ride into capital cities on donkeys. They do so on fearsome horses, right? A commentator Clarence McCartney says this. He says, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time no wall broken down for entry. This time no garlanded hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding on the foal of a donkey. Look, what's Jesus doing by all this? Well, you've got to understand that deep inside a Jewish person's understanding of how the world worked, their, their cosmology, if you will, was this confidence that because they were the chosen people of God, that one day God was going to come and deliver them from their foreign oppressors. They wanted a king. They needed a king. And it's as if Jesus is saying, Yes, I know you've been expecting me, but I've come to bring you also what you don't expect because I'm not the kind of king that you think I'm going to be. And of course, the religious leaders don't get it at all. They're barking at Jesus about, you know, rebuke your disciples, teacher. Of course, Jesus is pretty sarcastic in his response. He's like, you know what? If they stop cheering, the rocks will cheer out. 
This is not a compliment to the religious leaders of his day when Jesus says, even the inanimate rocks understand what I'm doing better than you do. So thick is your blindness. But what is it that they're blind to? What is it that the religious leaders are, are missing here? I think simply put, it's that God's way of salvation will not be through human means, through vindictive means, you know, through power plays and violence and oppression. And rather, Jesus is coming to say, no, 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 I'm going to come and win by losing. I'm going to overcome sin by, by becoming sin for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you life by dying. I'm going to show you my strength by becoming weak. I'm going to make you rich by becoming poor. This is the upside down calculus of the, of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the gospel of Luke. I heard one commentator call it the divine irony. This counterintuitive display of the God who really is. He moves to the ways in which we rarely see. What did these people think that they needed from God? What they thought they needed was for God to bring judgment down on the people that were oppressing them, namely the, the Roman Empire. But what Jesus was saying was what you really need is for someone to come down and bear the judgment for you. Because to the degree that you're blaming the Roman Empire for ruining the world, you are complicit. What you need is for someone to bring pardon and reconciliation for you too. So that when God does come back to earth and end evil, he can do so without ending you. That's what he came to bring. Quick point of application here before we go to the last point. God seems always to work in our hearts in ways that at first just don't seem right. And you probably ought to get used to this if you're even beginning to follow him. What does God, what God wants us to do in the short run is often confusing. Like there's just no way for me to be honest at this moment, to make sense. You know, this one small little tiny lie to get me out of this slight inconvenience, it just makes so much sense to do that. No one would ever see the online content that I consume. I mean, it's a victimless crime. There's just no way that God wants me to exercise tough love for this family member who for years has been abusing me. Hmm. The triumphal entry kind of challenges the way we see the world, doesn't it? And it like retrains our focus. We're always looking for the big thing, for the lightning bolt to strike. When so often the way it comes is in these tiny little things. I don't know if you remember when the movie trailers came out for the, um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy many, many years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. One of the early trailers had one of my favorite scenes in the books uh, where little Frodo has made it into, <laughs> into the forests of Lothlorien. Yes, I've watched this too many times. Um, and he meets the Lady Galadriel, the powerful witch, you know, who lives there in, in the forest. And in the trailers, Peter Jackson has Lady Galadriel saying to Frodo, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Well, I listened to a sermon a couple of months later by Tim Keller, who said that he, who, a, a Tolkien scholar in his own right, who kind of said, no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> it's not even the smallest person can save the world. It's only the smallest person can save the world. Because he understood that that's the way God works. He works in the tiny faithfulness as that the world hardly ever sees. And it's unexpected. So Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the expected king. And thirdly, Jesus is the weeping king. You know, as this parade is progressing, instead of displaying you know, that kind of 
you know, confident gaze of a majestic king. Jesus burst into tears. Hmm. The rejection that his people has caused, uh, it causes Jesus to well up with so much pain that he begins to weep. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps because the nation is missing his moment. Now you and I can see the whole picture. I know we can look and see that, no, 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 his rejection at the hands of these people is going to lead to his crucifixion and his resurrection. But in the moment, the national consequences of these people's blindness is so tragic that it just staggers Jesus. Jesus buckles in tears. The word translated wept, I found out, is a little bit stronger. It could actually say that he was wailing. He burst into sobbing at the lamented lost opportunity. So I was in seminary the first time anybody ever um, presented to me this idea that um, for Christians, we oftentimes talk a big game about wanting to imitate Jesus. We should all be like Jesus. Are you like Jesus? I'm trying to be like Jesus. But we often overlook Jesus' emotions. Isn't this fascinating? Because Jesus is revealing to us what it means to be fully human, to really be in the image of God. But his emotional life reflects the image of God without any deficiency or any kind of distortion. But let's be honest, (laughs) and especially in a tradition like the Presbyterian Church in America, emotions for us, they're just, well, yucky, right? We don't go there, right? Uh, It's those people that are out of control who let their emotions go, right? Uh, We stay away from our emotions. (laughs) We medicate them, right, for for fear of them overtaking. We're controlled by them. We do anything but express them. But here's the deal. The gospel writers, they paint portraits of Jesus in a kaleidoscope of emotional responses to the world around him. Jesus felt compassion. Jesus was angry and indignant and consumed with zeal. He was troubled. He was greatly distressed, very sorrowful, and he grieved. Jesus sighed. He wept and sobbed. He groaned. He was in agony. He was surprised and amazed. He rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy, and he greatly desired, and he greatly loved. Jesus was an emotional person. I read an article a few weeks ago. Uh, on how much trouble men have in sort of dealing with their emotions. Gentlemen, bear with me for a moment. The writer of the article had been living in a foreign country for a number of uh, months and uh, got a call from a friend of his back home uh, who was just calling to check up on him. Well, as the writer was sort of talking about their, their uh, lives, about his life over there, the conversation kind of turned towards his homesickness. And at one point during the conversation, he recalls saying, you know, it's just so hard, man. <laughs> I like living in a foreign country and everything. I know it's only temporary, but, but I just, I miss the U.S. I miss my home. I miss everyone, like my family. It just feels so lonely sometimes, you know? His friend responded like, yeah, that's, uh, that's too bad. But what about those ladies in Europe, huh? <laughs> and the writer looked up and said, you know, at that moment, I was left so empty. And I suddenly realized that after 17 years of knowing this friend, the only time we had ever talked about our emotions was whether or not we had won or lost the game. That was the extent of it. (laughs) They never ventured into anything about how they felt about situations. And he said it just opened up this chasm in emptiness 
inside of him that he just didn't know was there. He needed to share his emotions, he said. I needed to get those out in order to be able to connect with someone. Look, about 100 years ago, there was a theologian whose name you need to remember. His name is B.B. Warfield, taught at Princeton back in the day, who wrote an article that I read in seminary called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It completely renovated my view of Jesus in this regard because he talks about how fully human Jesus was in his emotions. He says the reason why that's important that Jesus can get emotional is because we need to get them out. We need to feel connected. Look, we express emotions so that they don't tyrannize us, right? But rather enhance us. So you're actually, you're not growing into Christ-likeness until you're learning to process your emotions. To where you're learning, on the one hand, (laughs) how to manage my emotions so that you don't, as as my my friend uh, therapist uh, John Cox says, so that you actually have your emotions and you're not always doing your emotions. A lot of times our emotions are used as inflictions on our family and friends. But nor are we on the other side of the boat where we're actually stuffing our emotions, ignoring them, trying to get them to go away, hiding them and concealing them. No, if we want to be like Jesus, we aren't pursuing him until we're like him in our emotional life. But how do we do that? Well, to put it simply, our emotions are going to tyrannize us as long as we don't know who we are. Jesus is doing this whole triumphal entry thing to say that I'm coming to do something that will ultimately come culminate in my identity becoming your identity. He's going to die in our place, yes, but he's also going to bring us into union with him. The closest possible identity association. So much so that the Apostle Paul, some books later, is going to say, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This is where the following chapters are going. (laughs) So listen to what Warfield says. He says, when we observe Jesus going through the movements of his human emotions, we are looking at the very process of our salvation. Every time you see the truth of Jesus' humanity, you are seeing an exhibition of the reality of our redemption. Listen to this. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows. And having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Jesus is the weeping king, but don't don't translate that weeping as pity. On that donkey ride, he's there absorbing something. He's neutralizing something. He's bearing something. He's owning it. So that when he dies, as we will see him do in the weeks to come, he'll do so in a great shriek of emotion. Why? So he can save us and love us and hear us and connect to us in the midst of our own pain. So behold this king, (laughs) a sovereign, expected, and emotional king. Look, I think this text is kind of encouraging us this morning to compare the kings and allegiances that we have set up for ourselves to him. And so how do they compare? Because I'm not sure that anything could be much more compelling about Jesus than what he presents himself to be here. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, help us to see that. Help us, first of all, to see where we have bent the knee 
to all of those things that we thought were little habits on the side. But the truth is we've been worshiping. We've been bowing down to these things. And now they've come to tyrannize us. We even sometimes feel addicted to them. Would you this morning open our eyes so that we can see those things for what they really are? Tyranny. And that we would come to you, a king who is in control. A king who will surprise us because you're not what we expected. But a king who will sit with us and weep with us in our pain. And laugh with us in our joy that you have won us for forever. Did you do that this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.